0: Good morning everyone. Uh, Today our reading comes from Galatians chapter 2 and we're reading from verses 11 through to 21 and if you have a bible from us here it's on page 1168. When Cephas came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, "'You are a Jew,' Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to, fo- to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jew- Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith and in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing.
1: Brilliant! Thank you for reading the Bible. You know, um, reading the Bible is the only thing we get right in the service. Not that everything else is wrong, but guaranteed when you open God's Word, God is speaking hundred percent, and that's brilliant. So um, earlier this year, uh, a British photographer named Rankin and a bunch of other people helped him made a made a selfie series. Uh, sorry, let's that again. He made a photography series called "Selfie Harm." And in this series, he took 15 teenagers and he photographed them without any makeup or filters or editing. picture on the left is is the girl in this case with no filters. You see, the pressure to get rid of our flaws is becoming quite dangerous. We're erasing parts of ourselves, um, laughter lines, freckles, then modifying the rest of ourselves, face smoothing, narrowing the features, bigger eyes like animated characters, all that. So after the photograph was taken, they were given the power to enhance their photo however they like with professional editors and software at their disposal. Wear the mask they always wanted to wear online. That was the brief. So wake up in the morning and have a team of experts who can make you look just how you always wanted to. Like Not not just the guy down the road who knows how to use Photoshop, but the the professionals, guys that are paid to do it all all day, every day, that make a lot of money from it. So the left is the original, the right's the digital mask. What's striking is that most of these fifteen teenagers, when they saw the two photos next to each other, the majority of them said, I prefer the unfiltered one. The reality is that each of us often wear masks at times and maybe you haven't quite filtered your face for an Instagram post ever. But we're all prone to act like someone we aren't. To exaggerate who we are in different social settings or around different people. So, sometimes you default to it. It just happens. You're nervous. You go into a room and you put on a face. Sometimes you make sure you do it because you've had a bad day and you want to make sure that people aren't going to find out. Sometimes you do it to protect yourself, to save face from an embarrassing moment, the pain that's happened, to pretend you're a better version of you. But you know that masks don't form good communities. They don't fix us as individuals. Instead of relationships being founded on trust, honesty, sacrifice, masks good relationship of temporary scaffolding, people pleasing, fear, pride, power, pixels, filters, the fake you gets this comes across, and that stuff bulldozes good relationships. And so, in our passage today, in Galatians two eleven to twenty one. Paul is unpacking the gospel. We've seen him so far stunned that the Galatians are turning away from their hope in Jesus. He then uses his own life as an example to say that what you're turning to isn't going to cut it anyway. And my life's an example because he was one of the best followers of the Jewish law ever. And if he couldn't do it, well then they've got no chance. And now he unpacks in these few verses how the gospel of Jesus removes our masks our social pretenses, our superiority complexes we have, and shows how this gospel community always comes back to the cross of Jesus. And the way the gospel transforms us is by tearing down our masks. And what these verses let us see is that all of our masks that we ever have worn or have wear, will wear, have been crucified on the cross already. You don't need to rebuild them. You don't need to wear them again or apply a filter to make your life better because Jesus gives you a new life to live in and out and from. It's not just a modified Photoshop version of you. It's a totally new you. So let's see how that happens. And today, maybe you'll be able to find life not wearing another mask, but at the cross of Jesus. And if you're new to church here today, come with us as we explore Something that all of us struggle with at times, and maybe you will find an answer to your mask wearing too. So Paul wrote, um, the writer of Galatians, relays an event now that happened not at the Galatian churches up north, but actually at Antioch, a little bit north of Jerusalem. And it was a big deal for for all these churches in, in Galatia nonetheless. And the whole issue is about the place of the law of Moses in the life of the Galatian church. And the reason that's brought up is because of a confrontation that Peter and Paul had over the Mosaic law. And that's very Jewish. And that's very first century. I'm sure none of you woke up today and said, how will I follow Leviticus 16 right now in my life? Maybe you've read it and you're pondering that. And that's great. But you don't typically get caught up on matters of the law, particularly the Mosaic law, particularly on how many threads you wear and if you should or shouldn't eat with certain people. So come with us. And let's see if we can unpack some unpack that for what it means today. So he came from Antioch, Peter did, up to Jerusalem. And he spent time there, totally convinced through his conversion to Christianity that relating to other people groups, Gentiles as they were called, was okay. Shouldn't avoid it, eat with them, kick around, do life with them, live like a Gentile, doesn't really matter, it's all well and good. But something happened that made Paul write this in verse 11. He said, when Cephas, or Peter, as he's also called, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter's actions in public, mind you, were very clearly against the gospel he and others believed and professed. In short, Peter put a mask on to save face. So Paul confronted him in verse 12 and 13 and says this. For before certain men came from James... James was in the Jerusalem church, the brother of Jesus. He used to eat with Gentiles, but when they arrived, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy that, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So over a period of time, Peter stopped doing what he would normally do, right? Right? He'd eat with the Gentiles, with anyone, freely, whatever was on offer, but then he stopped. Fear ruled Peter's decision. Fear of their opinion of him. Fear of them. Fear in 10,000 reasons rattling through Peter's head, and he began to behave differently, and in doing so, he changed the culture of the Antioch church all because of a meal. It's interesting that, that even today... We still have conflict over a meal. I've not been invited to go out with them. And that hurts. Not eating with that person, not being able to sit next to them at the table. Classically is wedding seating arrangements. Man. Not being able to join in over a meal. Separation has caused more than one conflict in our time as well. So it's not a so far removed issue here in one sense. But very soon, this deep rift was apparent between groups, Peter being a leader and the example, led from his fear and insecurities. And then other people saw him and followed. Even big-hearted Barnabas, one of the great encouragers of the Bible, he, he followed Peter and stopped eating and associating with this group of people. It's a classic example of peer pressure and how their own sin has affected others. Peter created a culture from his fears and insecurities, not from the gospel of love and unity. And Paul looks at this, and maybe he was there as it happened. Some commentators say it happened in Paul's own home, um, but we don't really know. We don't know if someone had told him what had taken place, but, but it seems that Paul's confrontation wasn't instant. Time had passed. The culture had developed and grown, and then Paul confronts him in verse 14 and says this, "'When I saw that we're not acting in line "'with the truth of the gospel, "'I said to Peter in front of them all, "'You are a Jew.'" Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? See, what's going on that caused Paul, the writer, so much distress was that Peter was acting in a way that masked and assumed a different character. Peter assumed a character that wasn't his. He drew back, he separated himself, and others followed Peter's words and actions, they confuse the gospel, which is why Paul takes a stand in verse 14. He was acting and personifying someone who wasn't a follower of Jesus. What happened was deeper than a behavior problem. It's actually a gospel issue that needs to be addressed. You see, the gospel does something to how we view others. In this case, it broke down cultural and social barriers, but Peter had rebuilt them back up. And the gospel are something to how we behave. The gospel frees us from living in fear of others' opinions, be ruled by their approval. But Peter chose fear instead of the gospel. The gospel confronts our very decision-making, see, at the heart of who we are and causes us to walk differently than before. And while it looks like that Paul is harping on to Peter, causing him trouble, the opposite's true. Because of the community in Jesus they both share, Paul addresses him. Deidre Bonhoeffer, in World War II, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. If you can find it, it's excellent. And in that book, he says this, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs it again and again when he becomes uncertain or discouraged. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus. Here's the thing, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. You see, part of the community we're saved into means when we don't display the gospel in our actions in our lives, it's, it's okay to confront that. Edification is the word. It's an older word. Um, it means teach, instruct. And the way Paul does it, the way we must do that as well is to go back to the gospel to point out how Peter wasn't living in step with the gospel. Peter messed up. He needed a Paul to speak the truth of his actions into his life, the community that we're saved into is about the outworking of the gospel. And in our lives, as we kick around and do life with each other, that's what we bring people back to. We never hold them to a behaviour standard that I think is right. We never hold them to a cultural custom or a norm or a way of doing things that I think is right. It's actually a gospel issue. I hold them back. I bring you back to the cross. And that's what Peter, sorry, Paul does in fifteen to twenty-one. And there's some debate over these verses. Did, did Peter say this, sorry, did Paul say it to Peter just like this? Or is it more of an, a summary? It makes sense that it's probably a dense summary. I'm sure Paul had a lot more to say than just these few verses. But, but it doesn't really matter because the point is for the Galatians who are reading this to come to understand the true meaning and implications of the gospel. This is what Paul says now. We who are Jews by birth, And not sinful Gentiles know a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, verse 15 sounds harsh. (laughs) We're not sinful Gentiles. I mean, that's pretty prideful, isn't it? But the point, actually, is to show that not that the Jews were morally perfect. Rather, the Jews did have a special relationship with God. It was a blessing to be a Jew. But the Gentiles are still sinful for not following God's law. It's not about the Jews being so great. It's about the Gentiles being sinful, all of them. And in verse 16, he goes on and corrects any form of racial superiority that you could think might happen from there. He says... um, you're not justified by the law. No one is. Neither a Jew who has God's moral standard and commands or a Gentile who kind of kicks around and does life on their own, defines right and wrong on their own terms. Actually, going rogue or following the rules of God isn't going to cut it, actually. Rather, faith in Jesus is the great justification leveller. And this word justification, first time we see it in Galatians. And it calls to mind a picture of the law courts where one is declared righteous before the judge. And in the picture of justification, God is the judge. The picture we have that Paul's painting is that we're all guilty. We've broken sin, transgressed, failed and wronged God and his standards. And our hope is that God as this judge would forgive us and make right and eliminate the guilt. But because God is perfectly moral, perfectly um, objective in his judgments, he can't overlook it. And so we have a problem. The surprise, of course, is that God does forgive. Jesus legally assumes our guilt and the curse of the law, as we'll learn about in Galatians 3, so we can be declared not guilty and justified. We're not acquitted in the sense of you might get acquitted in a law court if there's no nothing true found there. The judge does declare you're guilty. The judgment's guilty, but we're forgiven because Jesus assumes the penury and eliminates it for us. You see, faith in Jesus, the object of our faith, Jesus, was completely faithful. And that's how you're justified. The law can't do it. You can't make it happen. And Paul's next part is what, he, what he's saying, is you're not actually okay, Peter. In verse seven, if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves amongst the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. You see, the closer that Peter and Paul and anyone gets to Jesus, they keep realizing they're sinful. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus promotes sin. If Jesus reveals my sin and then keeps doing that, and I feel sinful at times more and more, does that mean Jesus promotes sin? And Romans 6 addresses that as well. But the answer is no. He, he reveals it to then expiate it, to take it away. Paul's aim is to remind them how they got in and how they're going to walk in this new life. You don't get into the faith through the Mosaic law. You don't go on in the faith by obeying the Mosaic law. You don't remain in Christ by following the requirements of the law. He smashes at home then in verse 18 and 19 and says, If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died the law, so that I might live for God. The system of behavior, of wearing a mask, to earn the grace of God, has been torn down as the body of Jesus was torn on the cross. And Paul's argument is that the Christian life with so little regard for the law to be justified in doesn't mean that Christianity is lawless, plunging an individual into anarchy, self-imposed ideas of right and wrong. Christianity is not immoral, contrary to a lot of belief today. And as chapter 5 and 6 will explore further, Jesus didn't give us freedom to sin. It's actually a life in the spirit. Law living is replaced by spirit living, you see. But now, because of me being crucified with him, there is a new community made through the cross. And when the individual is is saved, the cross exposes all our masks. God holds out for us grace to change and gives us a community of believers all defined by the same thing to do life with. And that's the crucified community that you and me are a part of. And then Paul gets to verse 28. And this is probably one of the most famous verses in Galatians. Maybe the fruit of the Spirit, and fighting for them. We'll do a poll later on and see what you think, but we won't actually. But you know what I mean. You memorized as a kid at Sunday school. I've been crucified with Christ, and no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, the life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I've been thinking about this all week, and it's a good thing to think about. But it's really strange. Verse 11, Peter's got a behavioural problem and then Paul suddenly gets to verse 20 and he talks about being crucified with Christ and justification. But Peter's already justified. So is Paul and Barnabas and, and all those in this scene. Same in the Galatian churches. They're already declared legally right by God through Jesus. So why would you bring up justification? I mean, if you were to diagnose Peter's problem, what would you say today? How would you you unpack it? Peter, you just need more self-control. That's what it is. Don't worry what others think, Peter. Just brush it off casually. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter. Would you say the problem isn't with Peter, it's with others? I mean, Barnabas is a big boy. He can look after himself. Why did he have to follow your example? Why would you care? I mean, why should they care if you don't eat with them? It's a meal. I mean, come on. You don't have to eat with them if you don't want to, really? We can downplay it like the Banking Royal Commission and try to hide everything up after exposure after exposure. We fixed it up. Oh, that was then. This is now. I mean, is that what we would pastorally come alongside Peter and say that? We, I probably would. Many of you probably would too. Ask it another way. We said, Paul, and this is very Christian language here, but Paul, why do you make it about salvation and justification when it looks more like behavior and sanctification? And Paul's so brilliant because he brings it back to the gospel because unless we believe the gospel, we will always behave with either a fear or a pride set mentality. And so Peter's fear is actually a gospel issue and that means it's a justification issue. And that's what he's saying in verse 15 and 16. He calls Peter and the Galatians go back to the fundamental issue of how they're made right with God because in Peter's decision, to, he was trusting another's opinion of him. I must be thought well of, he said. And in doing so, he rejected Christ's salvation. His salvation in that instance was rooted in fear, not faith, you see. And so verse 19, Paul says, I've died to the law so I would live for God. The dominant story in the Christian's life isn't the law that says do better, try harder, You can do it. Dig deep. Come on. No, we've been crucified with Christ. In saying we've been crucified, it implies that in the death of Jesus on the cross, you and me have have died with incorporated into his death. The death where he said it is finished is then declared over you. That means you're not really living anymore in one sense, but the life of the resurrected Jesus lives in you. You died his death, you live his life, it's completely redirected, completely reorientated to Jesus. And the fact that Paul says he lives in you, not just the spirit of God lives in you, shows how the Trinity works together here. The gospel transformation is extensive. It's not a renewed new, it's a totally new you. And faith here is the link between the spiritual reality of the crucifixion that you've been attached to and the life you live But it's not how much faith you have. Because then it means you have to try really hard to have faith. It's always the object of your faith that matters. Faith in the Son of God, Paul says. You have faith in Him. Your faith rests in Him. And that shapes how you live. And that's the point that Peter and the Galatians and you and me need to know. All our doing, all your behavior is going to come from somewhere. Uh, For the Christian, will it come from the place um, and the position? Will all our thinking, all our doing, all our acting come from the place of the cross? Will I navigate the relationships around me from the cross? Will I go into my marriage this week with the cross as the fundamental game changer for how I view and think? Will I go to my work and deal with those really annoying, tricky people I have to deal with, and have the cross at the forefront of how I think and act and respond? or when I get the email on Monday morning and I feel defensive and I feel hurt and I feel like I need to bend the truth just so my reputation can be maintained, what will I do? Because the same place that makes our salvation possible is the same platform for ethical behavior. The life I now live, he says, this is a here and now here, the life I now live, I live by faith. I live for God, In by faith in the Son of God. Putting your faith in Jesus is not about trying harder. It means transferring trust away from you to him and resting in that, who loved you and gave himself up for you. And that self-giving love is where you find life. You see, Jesus loves you enough not to let you live in a place of fear or mask wearing. Jesus loves you enough to say, It's my death that justifies you in a way nothing else can. Jesus says, I love you enough to let me be perfect for you. I love you enough to let my crucifixion be yours so you can live dead to sin. I love you enough to let my death be the source of your life. I love you enough so you can actually face those relationships and tricky things. I love you enough so you can face yourself in the morning. Because the crucifixion and his life is what enables us to do those hard things. Every day, every action, every decision as a Christian should come from the place of the cross, our justification. Peter, Galatians, you're moving from it. No wonder Paul is astonished. Read, read verse 1 of chapter 3. <laughs> Foolish Galatians! Who's bewitched you? And Steamer will unpack that next week, I hope. But but he's pulling his hair out as he's writing this letter to them. You're moving from this love and this justification for something that can never deliver on a... And so what's going to reorientate Peter and the Galatians and you and me? What's going to remove the mask so that we don't live in fear or pride or perfectionism? What's going to do it? It's it's the fact that you're justified already. So as we land now, back to today, in verse 14, Paul says, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And so, the Romans would wear masks over their face when they acted to assume a character that wasn't theirs, to play a part. And the question has to be asked, we've upgraded our masks to filters and to Photoshop and personifying a character that's not ours online or in person. Are we just play-acting with Jesus and his followers? I mean, we've had communion today, you play active in our relationships with others is the gospel of grace unmasking us so we can have life you see because Jesus suffered under the fear of bullying and the power of others we don't have to let fear like Peter or the influence of people like Barnabas creep into our relationships and community because right in front of us is the God of all grace who offers us life ruled by love and acceptance in Jesus that is already yours You are already accepted in Jesus. You don't need to try harder to be someone else. His grace can demask you. And that's good news. So as we go into our week, I, put your name there, Luke has been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Our great God, We read these verses and could ponder them for years and may we do that. May you graciously draw us to yourself so we can live in the already truth that we are accepted in you. We don't have to wear masks. Lord, if if we cover up, if we have been hiding behind a, a false personification, would you graciously undo that? Father, it does not build good community. You came to build true community. When you died on the cross for our sin, for our mask wearing, for our failures, Lord, graciously help us to move forward one step closer to you this week. In your name we pray, amen.